You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 83rd episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at the Relationship Center on Facebook and Instagram. Today, I have a very special guest back by popular demand, parenting expert Sue Kranz. Sue is my most listened to guest episode of season two. She was introduced to choice theory when she joined a parent support group in the spring of 2003. At that time, she was a desperate single mother of six. She became a group facilitator, got certified in choice theory and reality therapy with the Glasser Institute, and went on to become faculty with them. Since then, she's facilitated parent groups and teen groups, coached parents, run workshops for parents and teens, and frontline social service agency workers. And she's taught several choice theory reality therapy practicum sessions. Welcome, Sue, and thanks for agreeing to come back on the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast. Oh, thank you so much. This is such fun. Yeah, we had such a great time last time, and you certainly were a hit with the audience, so I couldn't resist asking you to come back. I'm thrilled. Thank you. Let's jump right in. We have some questions that we want to talk about today. First one is, why do you think kids get so frustrated, and how can parents help? There are a couple of things that go on here. One is it's very difficult when you don't have as much control as you would like to have in your life. Uh, Isn't that (laughs) the truth? (laughs) Right? Yes. And so it's no different for kids. And so from what I've seen, the hardest thing for kids is not being heard and not having control. Mm. Sometimes there's nothing that can be done about that a best friend moves or you move and end up in a new school and you don't want to be in that new school or somebody dies or something happens. And it can be difficult letting kids experience that frustration, but they need to experience it because if they don't experience it, they don't learn how to get over it. So it's not the right thing to go around trying to have your kids live a stress-free life and when stress occurs to fix it all. No, one of the best quotes I ever heard was actually out of um, Gordon Neufeld's Hold On To Your Kids. And he said that we parents need to be agents of frustration and angels of comfort. Oh, that is very interesting. Isn't it? I know. I don't think he's suggesting that we need to purposefully frustrate our kids so they can learn to get over it. No, but we need to not protect them and try and save them and rescue them. Right. From frustration. We need to not try and make it all okay. Because you know what? Sometimes it's just not okay. Yeah. But I want that cookie. It doesn't matter that it's not good for me. It doesn't matter that dinner's in 15 minutes. None of that matters. What matters is that I want that cookie. 15 minutes before dinner? No. One of the best ways to help anybody through frustration, whether it's a child or whether it's an adult, is just to acknowledge that it's hard and just to be with them and to not try and fix it for them. Just to be present. Right. And that's where the angel of comfort comes in. My granddaughter last night had a meltdown over something. She wanted her parents to be here and they're not here. I just wrapped my arms around her and I said, that's hard. And she went, yeah. 
And within seconds, she was fine. Mm. But if you had tried to ignore or tell her, oh, don't worry, it's all good. They'll be here eventually. That's not going to really help her. That would make her cry even harder. So just acknowledging. Right. This also fits in with self-regulation because what we teach them is that they can manage frustration, that they can actually survive this because sometimes it doesn't feel like it in that moment. It can be really, really painful. That's really true. What is self-regulation and how do we teach it to our kids? I think the main way that we teach it to them is by modeling it. The hardest thing for me is watching parents who are not good at self-regulating, yelling at their kids to self-regulate. Do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) (laughs) The motto of many parents in the world. (laughs) The, the stop yelling. <laughs> you know? I like the ones where they hit their kids to tell their kids to stop hitting their sibling. The modeling is so important because children watch what we do way more than they listen to what we say. My kids have told me they never heard a word I ever said, but they saw everything I did. Mm-hmm. So how do we teach kids to self-regulate other than modeling? Is there a way? I think modeling is the most powerful, letting them talk things through, holding space for them so that they can express how they're feeling and what's going on with them without judgment. Sometimes just holding them, sometimes just sitting and being present with them can be enough. And just saying, just a very quiet, we don't do that. But where it's not, you can't do that. It's we in this family don't do that. And that means all of us including you, including me, which means that they can call me on it and they can say the same to me. We don't do that. You're right. We don't do that. I know when I work with parents, I often hear the question, how do we get our kids to help out around the house? Because that's not something kids genuinely want to do. Do you have any tips or tricks or wisdom for parents getting their kids to help out around the house? Here's what I learned just recently this is new. It's amazing how much stuff is out there that supports choice theory concepts that isn't technically choice theory, but that still supports those ideas. One of the things I came across recently was a book called Hunt Gather Parent. One of the things that she talks about in there is getting kids to help out is done by letting them. What we tend to do And I caught myself doing it because my three-year-old granddaughter was here and I went in the kitchen. She came right out after me, pulled the stool up to the sink, said, let me wash my hands and I'll do the dishes. What did I say? No, no, no. Let me, it's okay. It's okay. You go play with the kids for now and I'll take care of this and we'll find something else for you to do later. Well, she didn't want something else to do. She wanted to do the dishes, but it was inconvenient for me and it was going to be a mess. So that time I didn't, but I did after that. And she did just fine. The thing is that kids' willingness to help is really, really, really high until we discourage it. Wow. This is part of the belonging piece. This is part of the love and belonging where the way that they feel that they're part of the family is to contribute. I remember once, Sue, this is just such a fond memory of mine. My three-year-old at the time wanted to dust. 
I thought, what trouble could he get into dusting, right? So I gave him the pledge and I gave him a rag and I heard him spraying and spraying and spraying. And he didn't hurt or break anything. He didn't do anything terrible. But what he did get was a little blister on the end of his index finger from pushing that button to spray the pledge. It's just such a fond memory of mine. My son dusted so hard he got a blister. Oh, my goodness. But they'll do that. And then I'm in the bathroom with my granddaughter the other day, who's seven, about to clean the bathroom. She takes the clock from me and says, just go, I've got this. I said, is there anything you need to know? She said, no, I've got the cleaning stuff. Just go. I'm a professional, she said. Did that mean you had to pay her? (laughs) Fortunately, no. (laughs) Okay, in Oreos, but that's okay. (laughs) That's excellent payment for a seven-year-old. As long as it wasn't right before dinner. No, no. Right? Yes. So I went back and looked at it. She was there for half an hour. I went back and I could not have done it better myself. Everything on the toilet, inside and out, the sink, the counter, everything was spotless. Wow. And she was happy to do it. It was like, "Mm, no, you go. I'll do this. That is beautiful. Right? So Let them. Let them. That's really the answer. Let them. When they want to do it, not when you want them to do it. Just let them. And what they want to do. Mm -hmm. So that was actually something that I learned with my kids when I got into choice theory is ask them, what do you want to contribute? If you hate dishes, you don't have to do dishes if you hate them. Do something else. And I found that if they picked, they were much more likely to do it. But we also, then we overwhelm them. We don't teach them how to do things. We just insist that they do it. Go tidy up your room to a seven-year-old means nothing. Oh, it means shove everything under the bed so you can't see it. But if they're not taught how to figure out what's clean, figure out what's dirty, put things where they belong in the hamper, in the drawer... They need some guidance, but it's like, we'll shove them out from underfoot when we don't want them doing stuff where they're in our way and then insist that they do things where they don't really understand what it is that you expect. Right. So I know parents are really good at instructing their children about what they should do. And to your point, not always so good at how they should do it. But I know that there's another thing that I don't know if we teach our kids or if we're supposed to or how we do it. And that's what do we teach our kids about thinking and creativity? Or do we just kind of let that happen? Okay. So I'm going to tell you a story because I love telling stories, but this, Mm -hmm. this was something that happened with my 11 year old about six weeks ago. We were in the kitchen. I was taking up some ice cream for him and his sister, took up the two bowls, handed him a bowl. He looked at the other one, put his down, took the other one. And I laughed and I said, I think the one you had had more in it. Not much, but a tiny bit. He said, well, let's check. So we got out the scale and we weighed them and sure enough. So he went to swap back and I was laughing. His sister came in and said, what's going on? And I said, well, this is what's happening. And he suddenly burst into tears and ran out of the room. And it took me a while to find him. I didn't even know where he'd gone. And I finally found him in one of the rooms with his back up against the wall and his knees pulled up. And I said, what's happening? He said, nothing. So you mad at me? No. Would you tell me if you were? Yes. No. <laughs> I said, so tell me how you were feeling. That's when he started really crying. And he said, 
I was feeling stupid. I said, okay, what else? He said, I feel, and now he's sobbing. He said, I feel like I don't belong anywhere. Ooh. And I went, wow. And then he said, and sometimes I wish I wasn't here. Ooh. And I said, where's here? He said, anywhere. I've now kicked into overdrive in my mind going, okay, CAS, children's helpline, psychologist, psychiatrist, medication. Is he suicidal? I had such a moment of being panic stricken. And then I stopped and went, but I don't know anybody who hasn't felt that, including me. I felt stupid. I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like I wasn't sure I wanted to be here. So I said, can I give you some information? He said, sure. I said, sometimes the mind creates thoughts that we just believe. And those thoughts may not be true at all, but we think they're true because they've showed up. But that's not the same as thinking. And now he's calmed down and now he's listening. And he said, but if it's coming from my mind, then I'm doing it. I said, yeah, you're doing it, but you're not doing it consciously in the same way that you don't control your breathing or your heart rate. You don't necessarily control the thoughts that just show up. And he's going, oh, I said, but the thing to know is that the fact that a thought shows up doesn't make it true. It just makes it a thought that showed up. You're not required to believe it. Now he's calm and he's engaged and he's going, I didn't know that. He came up to me later that evening and just threw his arms around me and said, thank you for telling me that. I never knew. I feel so much better. Wow. <laughs> so we avoided everything that that could potentially have become. That was terrifying for me. Yes. Score one for the grandma. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You normalized it. You didn't catastrophize it. You stayed calm and you stayed present. It was a beautiful interchange you had with him. It was very meaningful. I think to both of us, it really brought us closer. Nice. And why it alarmed me so much coming from a child. I don't know, because I've heard this in workshops that I've done for frontline workers where they've come up to me afterwards and gone, Oh, I had no idea this was normal. I have these thoughts and I thought I was terrible and maybe I'm a sociopath. <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe you're not. Oh, dear God. <laughs> you know, because people don't know that the thoughts appear. They just show up. Doesn't make them true. Right. What a beautiful piece of information to give to I, an 11-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. But also if, the parents who are faced with that. Right. And you know, if I had known that at 11, my life might've been very different. It's just yeah. such a little piece of information, but I think that parents don't often think to teach their children about thinking. But how many parents know? That's right. That's something we all know from choice theory. And there's many people who understand those concepts. Like you said, there's a lot of things out there that support it, but there's at least as many, if not more, who don't know that. Right. For themselves and for their children. Right. Earlier, you talked about not rescuing children from frustration, and I'm sure there's other things that we rescue them from. What is the difference between rescuing and helping? Because certainly we're supposed to help our children. Helping is doing for somebody what they can't do for themselves. If you have a two-year-old and they can't tie their shoelaces, you help them tie their shoelaces. Then you teach them how to do it. And then once you've taught them, you just let them do it. Rescuing is not about the kid. 
rescuing is always about us. And this was something that I had to come to terms with when I was in the parent support group going, why is it that parents and me, because I'm a parent, keep jumping in to rescue kids and keep them from experiencing the consequences of what they do? I realized that that was a me problem. It was not my kid's problem. It was my problem. And I did it because I didn't want to experience the discomfort of them doing whatever they were doing. Oh, yeah. It can be really painful for parents, right? Right. However, if a kid's arrested, what do you do? Do you go and bail them out? Or do you say, I'll go to court with you. I'll stand by you, but you'll have to do whatever you have to do because I'm not getting involved in this. This is yours to deal with. The same with the school where the kid gets in trouble with the teacher and we jump in to rescue them from the teacher instead of just saying, you know what, the two of you can work this out between you. And I let the teacher know as well, thank you so much for all of your efforts on their behalf. I can't get in the middle of this. I can't fix this. This is between the two of you. You'll have to sort this out between you. I actually had a teacher one time accuse me of dumping responsibility for this on the teacher. And I said, no, I'm actually dumping it on the kid. There is a difference. There's a big difference. You do whatever you do as a teacher with this, but you negotiate with him. You negotiate with her. You figure it out between you. I'm not there. I can't do this. This is not mine to fix. So a lot of it is figuring out what's ours to fix and what is not ours to fix. Is this something that reasonably they should be able to do by now? I get the impression that what you're talking about is allowing kids to experience the natural consequences of what they do. And that then teaches them some things about what they might want to do again and what they might want to avoid, right? Right. When my son was 15, while I was working at home, he put his fist through the glass in a barrister's bookcase and cut his hand up quite badly. Oh, I bet. So I said, grab your health card. And we put a makeshift something around it. I drove him to the hospital, which was close by five minutes away. Drove up to emerge. Said, okay, where you go, call me when you're done. Sorry, what? What do you mean call you when I'm done? You're not coming in? I said, I'm not coming in, I'm working. This is up to you to take care of now. So you helped him by giving him the ride, which is something he couldn't have done himself. Right, right. But you knew he could negotiate the emergency room and whatever had to happen with the doctor. Yeah. And that was a him thing to deal with. There was nothing that I could contribute by being there that he couldn't take care of. He wasn't in any risk. He was shocked. But from that point on, I wasn't allowed in the doctor's room with him anymore when he went for needles or checkups or anything else. It's like, you stay here. And actually said to me one time, just wait in the car. I said, no, it's minus 20. I'm not waiting in the car. (laughs) I'm curious. Respect is a big thing in parenting, right? I hear a lot of parents talk about how important it is for their children to respect them. And I often ask the question, is it respect or compliance that you're looking for? Because to me, they're very different. So I'm wondering if you could help put words to the difference between compliance and cooperation, because compliance and cooperation are not the same thing either. what, What do you see as the difference and why is it important? First of all, I loved what you said about respect, because that's exactly right. A lot of people confuse respect with good manners or compliance or fear. Yes. It's none of those things. Compliance is doing as you're told. And cooperation is being a contributing, valued member of a group. I'm not sure how else to put that. Someone who feels that their opinion matters 
that their work matters, that the things that they have to offer matter, that who they are matters, are more likely to be cooperative. Cooperation is a heart thing. Sounds like it's about doing your part to help the group meet whatever goal it is that's in the forefront at that point. Sure. So if it's getting the house cleaned on Saturday before you can go out and play, then they're pitching in. If it's talking to each other in a kind way, then they're on board with that. But when you use fear and intimidation to get compliance, I find, I don't know if you do, but I find that the minute you turn your back, there's a very different behavior than what you're expecting. Yeah, because there's no sense of willingness in compliance. Your opinion doesn't matter. Your agenda doesn't matter. How you feel about it doesn't matter. Your willingness or unwillingness doesn't matter. And sometimes, you know what? It doesn't matter. Like the house is on fire and we're leaving now. It doesn't matter. Compliance is critical. There are times when the parent needs to make the decision. A friend of mine put it really, really well. He said that what he taught his kids was there's what you want, there's what I want, and then there's what the situation requires. And he had some of the most cooperative kids I've ever seen. It was just a comment when they came out to visit one time about, oh, Richard, that's going to have to come off the top of the car before we can get out to the beach. And that was all he said. And Richard's right on it. It's like, oh, yeah, it does. Went over, unloaded everything, took it off. But there was no coercion. He wasn't being compliant. He was being entirely cooperative. Doesn't sound like the father even asked him to do anything about it. Just made the comment. That was it. That's beautiful. I know it's, it's quite lovely. And he also talked about the fact that his kids did all the cooking because they preferred to cook. He preferred to clean up. He said, I'm just not a great cook, but he has a number of awards for scullery maid of the year. Oh, really? Yeah. Cause he does a really good job cleaning up the kitchen after they've made dinner. (laughs) Very nice. Very, very nice. What does it mean to have a child keep track of you? Isn't it the parent's job to keep track of their children? That's what we've been taught. (laughs) No, I don't even remember where I came across this, but it was very powerful to me. My husband and I were out with my grandson, who at the time I think was five or six, in the grocery store. I'm shopping and Mike is chasing James around because James is five. They get back to the cart and Mike said to me, how do I stop this? I said, it's easy. You stop chasing him. What? I said, you just stop chasing him. It's his job to keep track of us. We have the keys. James is hearing all this. And then he was just stuck to the buggy for the rest of the trip. And that was the last time it never happened again. So then my granddaughter, about two years ago, she was about five. I was on the phone with her and she said, I was shopping with Mike. He nearly lost me. I said, good heavens, what happened? Well, he was leaving the store without me. That's not okay. It's his job to keep an eye on me. I said, no, it's not. What? I said, it's not his job. What do you mean? I said, it's your job to keep track of him. He knows how to get you home. He has the keys. So you need to keep track of him. It's never happened again. I can be anywhere with her and I don't have to keep track of her because she is keeping track of me because she understands now that that's her job. I'm the adult. The thing is that kids are more hardwired to observe than to be observed. They don't really like being watched, but they like to watch what's happening. And I've noticed it with Amish families in our neighborhood when I've gone over there, where the mother will be like a sun and the kids will be like little satellites around her. 
and they're saying nothing, but they're all present and they're all watching and nobody's paying the slightest bit of attention to them. And it's exactly how they want it. And they're just taking it all in. And I thought that's so interesting. So she started to have tantrums a couple of times in the store and she'll sit down on the floor. I just wander off and within three seconds, she's right beside me again. It's like, oh, oh you know, I can't. Lost track of you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she did it one time recently when Mike and I were in the store. She was having a meltdown over something that she simply couldn't live without. I said, I, I know that's hard. And it wasn't letting up. So I just headed off, met up with Mike. And he said, where's Vivian? I said, walk slowly. Don't look back. Walk slowly don't look back. And within about half a minute, she was right up with us and she was fine again. But the other thing too, is that it gives them some control over the situation. They don't get to run amok, but they do have some control over where their people are and where they are in relation to their people. And it's not somebody else's decision. It's just theirs. Oh, how I wished I had known <laughs> that idea when I had younger children. I can't tell you how many times I, quote, lost my children. My son hid underneath a rack of coats. My other son climbed the ladder to the top of the displays in a Walmart that was probably two stories high. This was not a deliberate losing. My son left us. So when he was 13, we were at the Taste of Chicago. It was before I lived here. And there's millions of people at the Taste. And we come from a very small town. He's never been in a place with that many people. And he decided he wanted to go off on his own. And he just left. He said, I'll catch up with you later. And before I could say no, he was gone. And I was terrified just thinking, how in the world will we ever find him again? And I still don't know for sure, but I don't think he ever went anywhere. I think he was keeping his eye on us the whole time because he showed up right where I needed him to be at the appropriate time. And he couldn't have known that's where we'd be because I didn't know that's where we'd be. I think he had it in his head. It was his job anyway to keep track of me at that point. But how interesting and what a great concept. But it also doesn't absolve parents of the responsibility of maintaining awareness of their children. Because, you know, there's always somebody looking for a stray child whose parents aren't paying attention. I love the concept of walk slowly, don't look back. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I keep track of them. Of course you do. Yes. But they don't know I do. Right. That's all. Yep. I love that. If our audience would like to make contact with you, how do they do that? They can email me at sue at sanerparenting.ca. Okay. And do you have anything? I know that we're still struggling with the whole COVID pandemic. Do you do any programs online that people might be able to attend from far away? I'm hoping that I will be before too long. So I've got a website that is the bare bones are up and that's seniorparenting.com. Although .ca will also take you there and there will be workshops and so on available in the near future. Very, very nice. I'm happy to hear that you have far too much wisdom to not be sharing it with the parents of today. So, You're so sweet. Thank you so much for being with us, Sue. It's been a pleasure as always. This was great fun. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and please remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Phil Lynn, a great parenting coach and trainer.
I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast. And remember to subscribe.